This is B-Side. I'm Andrea Seabrook. And I'm sitting at a bank of slot machines. Wheel of Fortune slot machines. I'm losing. <laughs> but I'm taking the chance. <laughs> I took the chance anyway, and I lost. But gambling some money isn't the only kind of adrenaline-packed chance you can take, whether it's a quarter or a million dollars. In a way, it's the same for skydivers, bungee jumpers, rock climbers. These people get a rush out of, you know, taking a chance, too. Though with them, it's their lives at stake. On this episode of B-Side, we're dissecting that most human of habits, those easy words. Go ahead, take a chance. Why do people risk what they know? What do they get out of it? Lena Lightman went to find out answers to these questions in our first track on the B-Side today. Lena had done some indoor rock climbing, but wanted to get at those people who do the real thing. In the Berkeley Hills, there's a woodsy spot that's perfect for rock climbers. On any day of the week, you can find five or six people climbing, hiking, or munching on organic soy products. Today, there are about 10 climbers. The youngest is four. The oldest is in his 50s. The rock wall juts out from the side of a hill. It's not an enormous wall. The thing peaks at about 20 feet. But for the beginners here on this Sunday afternoon, 20 feet is enough to stir up some anxiety. Linda is wearing a harness that connects her to a rope at the top of the wall. Her belayer, Steve, is picking up the slack on the rope as she searches for footholds in the rock. Up to your right, there should be a good hold right just above, about, just about a foot above your head. That's it. So you ready? I'm going to bring you down slow. He urges Linda to trust the rope, but she's tightly gripping the rock, and I can see that she's not convinced. Why? Why would we want to come up here? Like, life feels so tenuous at this moment. <laughs> it's Steve's turn on the wall, and it's clear he's been climbing a lot longer than his comrades. Just how much longer is kind of uncertain. Uh, I started out as a child, uh, and uh, there were trees. And so, and after trees, there were rocks, and it just seemed like the thing to do. I mean, we were kids. What did we know? I climbed all kinds of stuff, street signs, uh, churches. Um, I got myself in a few, few bits of trouble. Now Steve is in his mid-50s, but he never really got over his climbing habit. I can tell by his thin ponytail and the web of brightly colored tattoos crawling up his arm that he has a youthful personality. One of the tattoos illustrates his favorite climbing spot, Mount Rainier. He jumps right into telling me about his many close calls. I came face to face with a rattlesnake climbing up over a thing and, and I was like on the ground in a couple of seconds. I have no idea how I got down. So I remember that very vividly. I guess I never really realized how far I'd gone in the sort of walls I was taking on. And most of them were 20 feet, 40 feet, you know, nothing big. And after a while, it kind of struck you that, hey, 20 feet, that's far enough to, you know, take you out. I am perfectly happy standing on firm ground and asking Steve questions about his first climbs. But stupidly, I let it slip that I've been climbing at an indoor wall. Steve insists that I try the real thing. 
I'm not really the type of person to back down from a challenge, so I put on some of his extra gear and set my mic in the pouch of my sweatshirt. What's the best way to go up? Um, I would say start on this side. Okay. Apparently, my new friend Steve has total faith in my ability to scale this wall. He isn't paying any attention to me or Andy, my belayer. He is playing a didgeridoo. I hope Andy can concentrate with Steve tooting away on a five-foot-long wind instrument. It makes me nervous because I can't find a good handhold, and I know that's what everyone's been saying. You gotta use your feet. About five minutes into my climb, I forget about my radio story. I don't care whether or not I'm getting good sound. I'm like a thousand feet up this wall, and I'm scared half to death. <laughs> is this where you got nervous, Linda? This is where I'm nervous now. <gasps> this part of the rock is really smooth. I can't find anything to hold on to. My foot is gripping the wall with the tip of my climbing shoe. I'm this close to falling off the wall. Just out further out here. Uh. I'm trying to decide how stupid I would look if I just gave up with all these people staring at me. I'm really not curious about this sport anymore. I don't understand the appeal. I just have to force myself to keep moving. All right, Andy. I think I'm done. I think so. You think I should keep going? Okay. <laughs> the view is actually pretty cool from the top. I can see the hiking trail and all of my fellow climbers and the expanse of rock that I just conquered. But now I have to get down. All right, should I try and swing this way to come down a bit? Scoot this way. Spring your feet up a little bit. Up higher in front of me? Yeah. This is the easy part for everyone else. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's wow, thank you. That was amazing. I know, man. <laughs> that was my first outdoor experience of any kind. That's I was pretty disenchanted with climbing when I got stuck halfway up the wall. But I did finish, and I'm grinning now that I'm back on the ground. One of the experienced climbers gives me a knowing look. It's a very, very addictive sport. It's my fear. That was Lena Lightman. When she's not risking life and limb for B-Side, she hosts a news magazine for the Smith College radio station. I'm back at this bank of slot machines here where we're spinning the B-side today and talking to people about taking a chance with their money and with their lives. But what I haven't told you is that I'm not in some casino somewhere. I'm in, get this, an airport. I'm in Reno, Nevada. Not too many airports that sound like this. Now, gambling, rock climbing, these are chances people take by choice. And, you know, they're kind of frivolous ones, too. Taking a chance for entertainment and perhaps some kind of personality growth, I guess. But there are those who take more serious chances and not always by completely free choice. Like immigrants, for example. What's your name? Sam Haddad. And your name? Nadia Haddad. And where do you live? I live in West Hills, California. Where are you originally from before you became American? Jordan. Country Jordan. of Jordan, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why did you take the chance on coming to the United States? Oh, that was a long time ago, 1953. There were no chances. You know, I was a, a foreign student at that time, 19 years old. You know. What do you mean there were no chances? 
Well, chances in terms, really there were lots of chances. As far as coming to a foreign country, not knowing the uh, custom traditions, not knowing the ins and outs of uh, businesses. I come from a country that is totally different in, in attitude, in uh, values. And it, it took quite a while to acclimate to the present situation. Was it worth the chance you took originally? Uh, reflecting back on it, no, uh, because of the fact that I could have done better uh, because I was, my parents were well-to-do, they didn't have to, uh, you know, go through the process, but I was, my own pride prevented me. I said I want to be self-supporting, work and earn my way, not my father to support me, and so in that respect there was quite a bit of a risk. And are you glad that he took the chance? Yes. Yes, better life here. Here in this airport, I'm watching people come and go, boarding airplanes bound for just about everywhere at this point. And some of them are taking a chance on a new homeland, a new place to care for their families. And they too are risking everything. Producer Sarah Lerner, who lives in Seattle, sat down with a couple of immigrants from East Africa to get at that kind of chance. I moved here to Seattle about eight months ago, and in the neighborhood that I live in, there's a lot of people from East Africa, from Ethiopia and Eritrea, and there's community centers and shops and restaurants, and um, I've just been thinking so much lately about my grandmother and my grandfather. They came here from Poland 90 years ago, so they took a big risk to come here. I mean, it must have been strange. It must have been scary, really, to uh, leave all of their family behind and their friends and their language and their food and everything. I feel like they took a huge risk that I didn't have to take. Because for me, I mean, I have it easy here. I wanted to sit down with somebody who took that risk and hear what they had to say about leaving everything that they had, you know, to come here to the United States. Hi. This is Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Nice Sarah, so nice to meet you, Sorry too. For the delay. No problem. I really appreciate you. Debesai Teklamariam and Leti Hagu live in Seattle. They came here from Eritrea about 30 years ago, separately. They met here, and they married after they'd both been living here for a few years. From the second I met them, I felt like family. They're just so sweet. They're so nice. I mean, I don't know if they're like this for everybody, but I felt close to them. Debesai came here in 1974 as a student. Did you know you were going to stay forever when you came as a student? No, no. I came here to go to school maybe four years. When I came to the United States, uh, I became politically involved in the uh, Eritrean issue. So I joined uh, so Eritrean students for liberation uh, in North America and uh, there was no way going back to Ethiopia unless Eritrea is a free country. Until I met Debesai and Leti, I had never learned much about the civil war in Ethiopia. Back in the mid-70s, Leti was at college there. She told me she was fighting for Eritrea's independence from Ethiopia. She and her friends were planning to sneak away from the city and join the Eritrean fighters. But Leti came down with pneumonia, and all of her closest friends secretly left without her. She said that after that, the Ethiopians would have known she was involved in the fight too, and so she would have been arrested if she stayed. So Leti found a way to get to the U.S. She says she feels so lucky. Because what would have happened is eventually I would have 
joined the freedom fighters like everybody else, uh, or there was a lot of unrest in, 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 in the capital city of Ethiopia anyway at the time, so it wouldn't have been uh, safe for me to stay. Because many of our friends uh, who went to school at the time with me left, and m many of them didn't come back. My Jewish grandparents left behind their whole world when they came here from Poland, and there were so many people that they never saw again. I know Debesai never got to see his father again after he left. I asked him what he misses most about Eritrea. This might be where you, you can earn your cash better, but that's where you earn your pleasure and satisfaction, morally and mentally. Yeah. This stupid uh, stomach and uh, clothing, maybe material-wise. <laughs> the, the break, mental break, the happiness. Oh my God, you stand up uh, the top of the mountain and say, you breathe the air, oh, this is good. But outside the door, you breathe as if it is some kind of aromatic uh, air. You say, ah, oh, this is air of my, yeah. It's interesting, it's sort of like, I feel like I'm doing the reverse of what they have to do. Like I'm trying to connect with my grandparents' roots, but for Leti and Debesai, they have to work hard to keep Eritrea alive for their kids. But they're certainly at home here. I mean, they have good jobs, they have a house and two cars, and their two daughters are in very expensive universities. They are totally American, but sometimes it's still hard for them. People constantly ask them where they're from, and they ask their kids, too. They ask them. They look at them and they say, uh, you know, where are you from? And uh, sometimes it doesn't make them happy, because why would they ask you where are you from? Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same for me. And for Debussy, we've always get asked, where are you from? You know, sure. So when they say originally, we tell them, you know, a good story. Uh, you just got to throw that originally <laughs> in. Exactly. When you've been a citizen for, uh, what, more than 20 years? Well, I was born after <laughs> Debesai came here. So. See? Yeah. So that is, you know, but you get asked all the time. Yeah. All the time. You know, you're kind of reminded like you're not from this area. Mm -hmm. And it's not a good feeling. We talked for maybe two hours. And afterwards, Debesai and Leti invited me out to dinner at uh, this Eritrean restaurant that they go to all the time. And a green chicken? Oh, oh green chicken. Oh, well. no, green no. chicken and kolwa. Okay. Anything to drink? Here, Debesai and Leti feel at home. You know, it's like they can almost feel like they're back in Eritrea. But I mean, they feel at home everywhere. I mean, they are home here in the U.S., at work, at Target, anywhere they go. Clearly, the risk for them of leaving Eritrea and ending up in the U.S. has really worked out. It's always the most difficult for the first generation that moves to a new place. It was for my grandparents, definitely. But for their children and for their children's children, like me, it's easy. The risk has already been taken. Sarah Lerner lives in Seattle, where she makes radio. We're back on B-Side, where I'm in the airport in Reno, Nevada. Today we're talking about taking chances. What's your name? Bonnie. Bonnie what? Simpson. Do you take any chances in your life? Can you think of any big chances you've taken? Yeah, I moved to Tucson, Arizona without a job or 
any sort of I didn't know what I was doing when I got there. I just kind of got in the car and drove when I was 25. Why? Because it was sunny there. I was from Oregon. <laughs> and I wanted to be someplace warm. So I, I went down there and I got a job the next, like within a week. So I was fine. But that has been like six years ago. Were you running from anything or just to the unknown? Just to the unknown. I just wanted to get away. Not away from anything, but just to be on my own and grow up and stuff. Yeah. So. so did it work out? It worked out wonderfully. I have a house and I live there now, you know, I have a home. So So if you hadn't taken that chance, you wouldn't, I guess, be who you are now. I wouldn't be who I am now. I'm sure I'd be somebody cool, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what it felt like to be in the car? It was exhilarating. It was very exciting. It was just what's going to happen, I didn't know. People go a long way to take a chance. You know... They come and go from countries. They, they go all over the place. But, you know, oftentimes they're people who find themselves in completely unexpected circumstances. And that unwanted change can force them to take that chance they might not have done otherwise. Like a person who finally tries that new career after getting fired or something. They didn't really ask for the first circumstance, but once it happens, it's somehow easier to, to take a risk. Producer Emily Cole found herself in just that situation and launched into her chance and about 3,000 scary miles of travel. Okay, so it's senior year of college, and I'm about to be commissioned into the Army as an air defense artillery and military intelligence officer on my way to South Korea. I've spent four years of my life working towards this, but a week before graduation, I re-tear the ligaments in my knee. All of a sudden, this plan I've had to go halfway around the world to start my life as an army officer is completely changed. So I go home along with all my fellow grads thinking, what the heck am I going to do with myself for the time being, and possibly the rest of my life? Moping around central Pennsylvania all alone is going to suck. I mean, for starters, it's central Pennsylvania. And B, I'm recovering from a knee reconstruction. Oh, and to make matters worse, I've slowly fallen in love with a friend of mine over the last two years of college. By graduation time, it's eaten me up inside. Not only do I have no clue how to express my love, but she is in California. And I'm stuck in Pennsylvania with the bum knee in my immediate future cast to the wind. What am I going to do? Well, what I do is I just start packing my car. Some people would have, I don't know, like made a plan or something. But I'm sick of planning. All of my life has been a big fat plan, plan, plan. I think I have some spare time, a degree in journalism, and I'm in love with a girl. I need to do something about these things, and, well, I don't really know what. So I just decide to go. But I don't want to go just for love, frankly, because I don't even know if she feels the same way. I can't let that be the only thing taking me out west. So I make a backup plan. I'll get a meaningful internship. I don't know where, say, something to do with journalism, radio, preferably public radio. Well, how about the NPR affiliate in San Francisco? Again, that whole pesky or-so-I-thought thing. Because after applying and never hearing back, I give human resources a call. I eventually get in touch with the right hiring person, and she tells me that I've been passed over as a candidate because I live out in Pennsylvania. Well, shucks, the nerve of these people. 
I quickly tell her that I really, really want it and that I'm coming to San Francisco. Like, the next day I will start driving. I tell her I'll call her when I get there and then maybe she can give me the internship. Just kidding. I didn't really slam the phone. But I wanted to, so there. So I'm packing. Packing, packing, packing. I don't know what to pack, really. How long am I going to be there? And is San Francisco hot or cold? That last one proved quite tricky. As I pack, I have many questions. However, the main two are, will Nicole and I end up together? And will I get this internship? There's something about not having any sort of idea what you're getting into that makes driving through Wyoming so much fun. Every creepy rest stop, every eternal cornfield is so interesting when taken in the context of going to California to pursue your first lesbian relationship and also see if you can get one of the most competitive internships in your field of work. Well, I think you get the picture. I drove. I drove and drove and drove. To San Francisco. By myself. To see if Nicole liked me back when I had no idea if she was even gay. To get a job I had already been rejected from. In the end, I got the internship. More importantly, although the details are a story for another time, I found love. And most importantly, over anything else, I said screw you to what made sense for the first time really in my life, and I just drove. Emily Cole is a radio producer with Audio Lux. She currently lives in Washington, D.C. with her girlfriend, Nicole. This is B-Side. I'm Andrea Seabrook, and I'm at the Reno Airport, back at my trusty bank of slot machines. These are Wheel of Fortune slot machines I'm standing by. Sometimes there are risks within risks, chances that occur from taking that chance. And sometimes you get more out of the happenstance than you ever imagined you'd get out of taking the first chance. Take Cody Strauss, for instance. She's 30, does job coaching in Seattle. She still hangs out with a group of close friends from college who are playful, to say the least. (laughs) On B-Side today, we pick up Cody's story as she's house-sitting and invites the gang over to hang out in the swank hot tub. And they start talking about nudity, public nudity. I started asking who's streaked and nobody was particularly like rah 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 let's go but I it start I was starting to build momentum around it. I think I had that nervous excited energy that I get before I do something bold. And finally I said you guys let's streak tonight. Let's do it. So at that point I now have that nervous stomach I guess the nerves are, it's illegal, or that it's public. That was, I think the nerves were around how public this is. There would be the streaker drop-off car, and then there would be the getaway car. So we get in the car, and we drive, and we see where the getaway is parked, and then we circle around the block. Man, I'm even getting nervous just thinking about it. And then we come, we pull up to the sidewalk, We hop out of the car, and before I know it, I'm running. 
I don't even feel my body. I don't even. I remember feeling almost weightless, but I could barely even feel my feet touching the ground. And so by that point, we're a third, maybe halfway down the block. And now the street has been awoken to three flailing women running entirely naked minus boots down the sidewalk together. At one point, I shift ahead and I'm now in front and we start to round the corner. We're in the safe, you know, we're, we're not gonna get caught. I'm not worried about cops or anything at this point. And I see the Volvo and I just run up to it on the, the passenger side back door. And so when I get in, I'm kind of annoyed at my friend Robin for not clearing the back seat to make it really easy for us to get in. And then I realize that there is a cloud of pot smoke. And I certainly thought to myself, Guys, this is a bad time to be getting seriously hot. You're driving the getaway car. You got to be on it, you know? And then I realize that there are two guys in the front seat passing the bowl to the back seat with their mouths agape and a look of shock and horror and surprise on their face faces. And I'm kind of in the midst of being like, Robin, move over. Like, come on, let me in. Like, what are you guys doing? And then I see my friends running by me, and I realize I am getting in the wrong car. And then I simply say, oopsie. <laughs> and I back out of the car, and I slam the door, and I run. And we get in the getaway car, and we laugh. We are basically screaming and laughing and driving and getting the hell out of there as fast as possible. For the last hour, I'd probably been on a quickly de-escalating spiral where I was further and further leaving my own mind. You know, that's when, you know, when people say I was out of my mind. That's what it was kind of like. I mean, I know it's not like streaking is the biggest experience or the craziest thing you can do, but it, it was like full on, like taking me outside of my comfort zone. This is a nightmare to be suddenly in the middle of the world. That's a, that's a nightmare that you wake up from and you're like, ah, I was suddenly found myself in the middle of the school auditorium making a class speech only to find I didn't have my pants on, you know? It was a moment of confrontation with being seen. However, being seen by three stoners in a car, somehow it just kind of lightens that experience of the exposure. Cody Strauss's story was produced by Hannah Jaffe Walt. When it comes down to risks, I guess the moral of the story is that there are a lot of different kinds of chances people take, from gambling here in the Reno airport, or streaking down a Seattle street, to moving to another country. And though they start out risking what they know, people seem in the end to be closer to themselves, their true selves, than when they started. So maybe taking a chance 
opens our eyes somehow and allows us to become who we really are. That's the full spin of the B-side for now. Marie Matheson produced this show with editing help from Stacey Bond and Claudine Zapp. Our senior producer is Tamara Keith. The theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. And I'm Andrea Seabrook. Thanks to the Reno Airport for letting us sit on the floor by this bank of slot machines. To hear more, check out our website, radiobside.org. That's radiobside.org. Go on, take a chance. See you next time.